So I know for a fact that my mind has been changed about certain ideas, concepts, people, ways of life through film. You know, I, I grew up in Compton and I remember being very, very afraid of, very, very afraid of AIDS. It just it scared me. I, there was a little girl, I didn't really know what, what was happening. And there was a, a group of films that I was seeing around that time and that, that, that started to, to make me feel, oh, okay, all right, this is something we can talk about. So I think in so many ways, these kinds of films, um, they make us less afraid of each other. And when you're less afraid, you can enter in more fully and more emotionally into engaging with other people as human beings and not as ideas to be afraid of. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, a woman grappling with tragedy embarks on a path of global discovery in director Ava DuVernay's historical drama, Origin. The film follows author Isabel Wilkerson as she sets out on a path of global investigation following a tremendous personal tragedy. In what would become her novel, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent, she chronicles how lives today are defined by a hierarchy of human divisions. In addition to Origin, DuVernay's other directorial credits include the feature films A Wrinkle in Time and Selma, the documentary 13th, episodes of the miniseries Colin in Black and White, and episodes of Queen Sugar and Scandal. She was nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Movies for Television and Limited Series, for her 2019 miniseries, When They See Us. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, DuVernay spoke with director Ed Zwick about filming Origin. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Thanks, folks. Happy Sunday. Well, Ava, um, I had the privilege of seeing it last night, and I'm still resonating with that um, and these people are very freshly um, with it. it it takes a while I think finally to absorb all of the implications of what you've done uh, I would I would say that having personally tried to make movies that have ideas in them obviously I I'm a kindred spirit but I also think that this is maybe the first time that anyone has tried to make a movie about an idea and how does one do that because it's not the most obvious armature for a story. And yet the birth of an idea, the struggle of the person behind the idea becomes what you're about there. And I thought that was, that's just unto itself besides what its content is, but just in terms of pure form, that's a remarkable achievement and, and, and really laudatory. So I wanted to say that first. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. I, I guess that the, 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 my, the first question I have for you, it has to do with um, a decision that you as a filmmaker make on your own taking a book uh, as an adaptation of someone's life, which obviously she talks about all this in, in her book, and yet um, somehow it occurring to you that you can do both a kind of a nonfiction uh examination of an idea and the examination of a life. 
and how to juxtapose those. Talk about that. <laughs> okay. Well, first I have to thank you for being here. It's very meaningful to me. You're one of my favorite filmmakers. And I remember, it's Ed Zwick, y'all. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember just early on, before I even started to think about the possibility of making my own films, because I started um, that idea in my 30s, um, I just was always attracted to your films because, like you said, they had something to say. Mm -hmm. I always felt like they had a sense of justice, a sense of, uh, I was learning things. And, um, and I've always, you know, held, held, uh, held those kinds of films up in very high esteem. And you're a cadre of a very few filmmakers who always do that. So right. thank you. Um, I, I hope to join that, that little list, a small, small group. Um, but I, um, yeah, I was fascinated by her. You know, I, I learned that while she was writing the book or leading up to her time writing the book, she had lost, she had lost people. And, you know, I, uh, having in my, in these last, you know, 15 years of life, uh, dealing with grief myself in different iterations and in different ways was very connected and, and attracted to the way in which a woman going through such deep grief, she lost the three closest people to her in 16 months. Um, how do you then go on to travel the world and, and write this, this, you know, colossal piece of, of, uh, of, of, of query, right? Like this, this intellectual journey, this uncovering this mystery, how do you do that in the midst of such loss? And so that fascinated me. And so I had the book, so I knew what the intellectual, you know, cultural concepts, the, the, the social phenomena that she was exploring what was. Um, but I didn't have the piece that really fascinated me, which was her. So I had to go to her for that. And she was very kind and very generous and really sitting down with me and allowing me to ask questions and opening up and talking to me about her process. And so the film started to take shape and that I would have her process of writing the book take us through these very kind of weighty, dense concepts. And we would learn them as she learns them. Well, there, there's something meta about that, which is that you're doing an examination about a person who's doing an examination. That's right. That's pretty great. That's right. You know, I also just, this is parenthetical, but Teddy Roosevelt lost his daughter and his wife uh, within days of each other as a young man. Oh, wow. And it forged, changed his life utterly. Mm. And I personally have a very particular resonance to it, just for what it's worth, that um, um, my mom was killed while I was in prep on something that became a very important thing mm. to me. And my partner, Marshall's father, died days after and that was a kind of crucible for us. Mm -hmm. And I guess what, where you're headed is that in the somehow the, the proximity of death and um, commitment, yes. is, there, is that, some, is that some, some relevance? There's something there, and I think that commitment gives, gives you a, a drive. I don't know, a drive. Certainly for me, my father passed away very unexpectedly and shockingly to us, uh, a week before I was supposed to start prep on A Wrinkle in Time, which was a big, big film for me career-wise and my first studio picture and all of that. And, you know, there's something about, yes, commitment, but also in its very, you know, most simple uh, iteration, something to do. Mm -hmm. You know, what I mean? mm -hmm. something yep. to just pull you forward and get out yep. of bed for, you know, to be forward, forward. Exactly. Looking. Exactly. So. Um, so, yeah, that that fascinated me. And that led me to uh, this work, which 
is not an adaptation, according to the WGA. It's an original <laughs> work. That's what they said. That's what they told me. Um, but yeah, it's it's the the writing uh, came from juggling the book and then juggling the new research, the firsthand research of her life. Great. Well, I mean, just to jump from theory to practice, mm-hmm. uh, I'm very interested, particularly interested in some of the magical realism mm. and the decision to include that, um, because again, that's not the most common um, currency of an American film these days or ever. Uh, and But to combine that and to work with your cinematographer and to understand a different use of slow motion mm-hmm. and to try to to figure out the nomenclature of that, I'm yeah. curious about that. those decisions. Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, it was scary to, to consider or to contemplate putting that part of it in. I'd wanted to articulate what grief felt like. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I can't be inside of Isabel Wilkerson's grief, but I did hear and feel what she was communicating to me as we as I interviewed her over over the course of two years during the pandemic. And, you know, I had to render the visuals inside of my own mm-hmm. grief imagery. And so that kind of in a black void, wanting to be buried in leaves, just wanting to disappear into the landscape was my experience. And so uh, I was able to, I wasn't rendering something that was told to me for those parts. I was able to to be very interior in that process. And it was a little scary to think, well, well, can I do this? But because we made this film independently, I was like, well, who's going to say no? Go ahead. They're not going to tell me no. Uh, I don't think it would have survived if it was had to go through a studio process. It would have been questioned and it would have been, you know, second guessed and it it may not fit the tone. And so I enjoyed the freedom to try it. But I was also wasn't sure. I had one friend who said, well, I'll tell you exactly what he said. His name is Guillermo del Toro. And he said, mi amiga, you must. (laughs) From his chest. (laughs) And, you know, he's going to talk to you like this. And I was like, okay, I'm going to try it, Guillermo. Well, you know, it's interesting, actually. Very even, even in a lot of, I think there's a something that has broken apart a little bit. If you yeah. think about Oppenheimer mm. and the fragmentation of time, yeah. I think there are directors now, even in the studio system, who are being given some greater latitude mm. to do things like that. And it's some, high time. Some directors are being some, given that's great, right. greater latitude. Um, but, but, yes, it was a scary thing just to think, can, can this... Can all of these pieces juggle together? And in this script, you know, they, they, you would have questions of like, Ava, who's the antagonist? Mm-hmm. I'd be like, mm, everybody? <laughs> you know, like it just wasn't going to be a good studio meeting. So we just decided to just jump over that and just make it on our own. My producing partner, Paul Garns, and I, who's in the audience, give him a shout out, folks. He's a hardworking man. <laughs> It was just the two of us putting this um, up with with a, a beautiful cadre of friends. I, I believe my first AD, Spike, is here, is he? No. There he is. There's Spike Tabuzia. There you are. That's my buddy. That's my buddy. Standing in the streets in the middle of Delhi, in the middle of the night in the cold in Berlin with people dressed as Nazis all around us. And I said, okay, Spike, light the fire. We're going to do it. <laughs> Thanks, Spike, for everything. And... How many days to make this movie? Spike, how many days? Damn. 37 days. That's, that's quite Said some. Spike, can you schedule this in a lean? We're going to do three continents, Spike. And, uh, and, and Paul says you have $2 and a paper clip. <laughs> can you do this in 37 days, sir? And he did it. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm I'm assuming you were able to get that cast together for the same reason that you made this movie, mm-hmm. that they saw there was some purpose in it. Yeah. Because it's a remarkable cast and an unusual cast in mm-hmm. some sense in terms of their different backgrounds and and how they how they come together. But it gave it a particular life for me. But talk about the cast for a second. Yeah. Talk about Ingenue. Well, that Ingenue Ellis Taylor, the lead of this film, is uh, a, a woman with an extraordinary power and a, kind of an outsized force mm-hmm. in terms of what she brings to all of her performances. Um, she's in her mid fifties and you know, had never been the lead in a film. And with those kind of chops, to never have had the opportunity to, to lead a film and, and that 30 years in this industry, I think, is is a, is, is a crime. It shouldn't, shouldn't happen. Um, you have, you know, uh, women like her who they just there's not material that's centering, uh, you know, black women. And certainly in an intellectual quest in this uh, in this kind of dynamic position where she's driving the action, and so I'm thrilled that that's that that's the, the this is the this gives her that opportunity uh, while it's bittersweet that it hasn't happened before. And the fact that we were able to cast her is is because we were not because we were independent, um, and all of those folks just gems of character actors who just. They just choose scenery. That's what they like to do. Uh, you know what I mean? In the best way, they come into the scene and they just anchor the scenes that they're in. Um, are many people that I worked with before, Blair Underwood many times, Vera Farmiga several times, um, a couple times before, uh, Nick Offerman I'd worked with before, um, Nisi Nash, one of, one of my best friends, worked with her three, four times. So it was a real familial kind of group of people. And then some newbies like John Bernthal. You know, I, I really just thought of him as the Punisher. Yeah, but and he, he has, he has, in fact, I, I know him a bit. He has great artistic ambition and extraordinary heart. And depth. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and so when I sat down with him and met with him, it was like, whoa, this is, this is Brett. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there wasn't a lot that I had looked at that, that would, that would add up to it. He did. When, right. When you talk to him in person and you know, oh, there's that, that just great, just an intelligent, emotional intelligence there that was very exciting. So it was a wonderful time. Uh, Ingenue and, 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 and John Bernthal had worked together before oh. on King Richard. Uh-huh. Um, so she had been nominated for the Oscar for her performance, and he says, I was the guy in the little shorts. <laughs> uh, he was the coach. He was good He in was it. the coach. He and was to- good and very it. Different. You forget it's him. Very different. Um, yeah. Great people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I'm interested also in – and this is going to be a little pretentious for one second, but there is a Brechtian resonance there having to do with nonfiction juxtaposed with fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you are, when you are dramatizing traumatic events, whether that's you know, the Trayvon Martin murder, whether it's the Holocaust, whether these things, um, I have found, and I'm curious to hear you talk about it, about the sense of either responsibility to either actually being giving sort of a flesh and blood to things that are, you know, horrific and beyond your understanding, but at the same time trying to apply to them the issues of craft and well, gee, if we, we've got to put the camera there so we can see the blood better mm. or things that are potentially exploitative mm-hmm. and that you're confronted with as you do them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, whether it's Selma or 13th or when they see right. us, you're, you've been there before. Unfortunately, this is something that I've had to grapple with quite a bit and I have to, um, be guided by my own sense of, 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 of ethics, but also of 
storytelling. And, you know, like you said, sometimes you're in these positions where you have to think what, where should the camera be? What should be said? How should we be moving? How should this be edited? When does the music come in that allows people to enter into this at at, at an emotional height. Mm -hmm. And that is a construction. That is, that is, a, those are all of those pieces are manufactured to get to a place where it feels real. Yep. And that's w why I enjoyed this process so much because having worked on documentaries like 13th, you know, really wanting to bring in some of those techniques and start to play with blurring the line between what, what's real and, and what's not. And what I love to hear is people saying, is that person real? Wait, is this person real? Did this really happen? Is that footage? Is that you? Is that, because it's, none of it's, none of it's real, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a narrative film. It's all been reconstructed. And so, but places where I'm able to use, you know, archival audio of Dr. King, of Dr. In Bedcar, of the actual 911 tape of, of, of um, Trayvon Martin's murder. Um, the, uh, you can actually hear the murder in the back of the 911 tape as it's happening. Um, you know, uh, spaces where we use non-actors or, or actors playing themselves, like Siraj Enge, the, the, uh, the, the uh, professor in India. Um, you know, those pieces allow... Um, are some of the tools of uh, or the tricks of the trade to sprinkle across just the you know with the with the actors with the production design and and try to just enhance this sense of wait is it real or is it is it not and so I think this is the first time I I I really tried to really um, deliberately blend the mm -hmm. forms in some spaces. And then you add the, the surrealism in there as well. Right. Now you're just making gumbo. You're just, <laughs> you're just stirring it up and you're seeing what works. And uh, and um, I enjoyed the process to free myself and to explore. I think I was really afraid for a long time. I had a lot of fear in this industry of uh, wanting to stay, you know what I mean? Wanting to be able to have the door kept open for me. Right. And so I had to constantly be working, working, working. And I did so many projects and I, you know, in some places wanted to be good and accepted. And, 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 and so there'd be another project. And on this one, I, I guess, I mean, I turned 50 and I was like, to hell with it. Look, <laughs> I'm going to do what I want to do. And, um, and so I feel like this is the project where, um, uh, the first film project, when they see us, I felt very free, but that was that was a five-part series. Thirteenth, um, I felt very free, but that was a doc. But this is the first narrative feature where mm -hmm. I thought uh, I'm just going to do my thing and see what happens. Well, that's always yeah. that's when it happens. Frankly, yeah. that's yeah. and it, and it is by my lights, it is a leap. Mm -hmm. Frankly, and and it just is right there on the on the screen. Um, I'm going to open it up for questions in a second, but I have maybe one more thing because there's something that I'm asked often. Um, and it's a it's a deliberately taunting question, which is to say, do you honestly believe that films that are you know have programmatic social issues and um, in them that you can change minds? Do you believe that we have a role in actually in the culture, or are we just sort of fooling ourselves? Uh, that's an easy question. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think uh, I believe that film is a, a, a true catalyst for, I won't say change, but for, um, you know, stirring one's consciousness. You know, films, the images embed themselves inside our mind. We think in, in our memories are our images. You know what I mean? The stories that we tell each other when we're telling a story, we're thinking about them in images. And so to be able to introduce new imagery to the mind, to a person, um, you are actually adding to that person's collection of, 
of the images that animate their own imagination. And so I know for a fact that my mind has been changed about certain ideas, concepts, people, ways of life through film. You know, I, I grew up in Compton and I remember being very, very afraid of, very, very afraid of AIDS. It just it scared me. I, there was a little girl, I didn't really know what, what was happening. And there was a, a group of films that I was seeing around that time and that, that, that started to, to make me feel, oh, okay, all right, this is something we can talk about and this is something that I can touch those people and I won't, like just the base, base understanding. You know, if, uh, my, my, if a young person in my family was telling me the other day that they were so confused about trans and what it was and learned about it through images on, on, from, from, from storytelling on film and television just to say, oh, it's, it's, it's just this, it's nothing to be afraid of. And so I think in so many ways, these kinds of films, um, they make us less afraid of each other. And when you're less afraid, you can enter in more fully and more emotionally into engaging with other people as human beings and not as ideas to be afraid of, which is our hope here. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a bit of a layup, I know, as a question, but, 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 uh, but you What's know. What's your answer to it? Uh, I'm sorry, my What's attitude? Your to it? <sighs> I think that, I think that, I think of it, it's almost in a, a musical metaphor that it is um, a single voice can't necessarily um, have that paradigm shift. Mm. But I think as you add your voice and as something becomes a rising chorus, mm. eventually it does reach a tipping point. Mm -hmm. And I know that, you know, 130 years ago, you know, there, there, a man was allowed to own another man. And I know that uh, you were allowed to smoke on airplanes just about 20 years ago. Right. And I know that there wouldn't have been same-sex marriage in America had there not been the normalization of people on television. That's right. So I do know that we do have that role. But, you know, they talk about the arc of history. Well, it is long. Mm -hmm. And you can't always be aware of it, but you just raise your voice and take part. Yeah. You said something to me. I just have to share it. I'm, Go ahead. It's okay. <sighs> when we were backstage, he said something to me, you know, sometimes you hear something and you think, I'm gonna remember that forever. Ed Zwick said something to me down there that I'm outside that I'm gonna remember forever. I said, I just wanna let you know that the auditorium's not full and thank you so much for driving from the west side because that's like another universe. We know this at this point. <laughs> and uh, he said, you know, uh, absolutely, you know, it, it, you made a decision not to make a film with, with someone with the, with the, who was a superhero. So, you know, the, the, you know the, it's going to have, you know, different, different uh, amounts of people that come in. And he said, just remember, I'm paraphrasing, mm -hmm. but just remember, you know, the value of your film is not box office. It's not, uh, it's not critics. Um, it is time. And he said, time will tell when, when you come. Isn't that great? He said, time will tell. And... And when you look up 10 years from now, if people are talking about your film or if it's in a school curriculum or if it comes up as a reference, then you know you were on the right track and you did what you meant it to do. I thought that was wonderful. Thank you for that. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, anybody, well, just uh, shout it out and I'll repeat I it. One right there. It's okay, go see. for it. Because it's so delicious, isn't it? <laughs> it's so beautiful, but I had an idea that I wanted all of the, um, I wanted to use one format. So because we're jumping around continents, cultures, time periods, you know, there's a, uh, 
a possibility to play with different formats and different color grades to denote, to denote different times. And the theory of caste is that it's all the same under all of the isms and all of the oppression, all of the challenges, there's this core idea underneath that we have to present people as a hierarchy. Some people are better than others in whatever way you decide. And there's, but there's a sameness to that idea. So I wanted a sameness to the way the film looks. So I thought 16 would hold, whether you were in August, with August and Irma in Nazi Germany, or whether you were at the Black Family Reunion, you know, uh, you know, that was happening in the present day, that format could hold it all. So it's the same color grade by Tom Poole. It's the same, um, it's the same format across the board. It's actually just, it's the same look across the book burning, all the way to the contemporary dinners. Um, and I thought that that format held it best. Thank you. First time working on film, it's scary. How about it's, over here? it's a tough one. Go ahead, yeah. It was a pretty short edit, thank you. Uh, we wrapped at the end of February, and we debuted, uh, uh, we, we turned in the, the print that would premiere um, at Venice in August. So it was a it was a pretty quick turnaround because I was very uh, I was very determined that this film come out this year. Uh, as an independent film, we had had you know very nice offers and suggestions of hey we would love to you this to be the something we push next year. Um, we're, we're busy the, the slate is full and there's a strike and it's just not a good time right now. But there's just something in me that says this should come out this year. This, next year's an election year. Like we need to start thinking about these things and putting putting all this out in the open and grappling with it before it's two months to the election. Um, and so um, we were in a bit of a, a, a rush. <laughs> Just keep talking. Just keep talking. <laughs> we were in a bit of a rush. Ed Zwick doing the social content. Thank you. <laughs> um, so yeah, short time. Thank you. Uh, who else? Come on, don't be shy. Right there. Yes, Chris Bowers is uh, my wonder kind genius composer. Um, he is uh, so young and such a genius and so incredible. He has two films this season. It might be three. He also has, has Color Purple. He, um, you know, it's everything from Bridgerton to Space Jam to, I mean, the guy can do to, to do anything. Is a, 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 a lovely, lovely, lovely person. But his approach to this was he want we wanted to make sure we had the 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 base kind of emotional pieces of Isabel's life, her love, her losses. But then also for the historical pieces, Chris went really deep into studying music that was produced during the Holocaust. Some music that he found in the camps that were produced, um, studying Dalit rhythms and really get, understanding the music, the musicality and the instrumentation there. So within those parts of the film, you know, the, 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 those rhythms, those ideas are embedded in his score. Uh, just a really, you know, just a diligent, beautiful practitioner of what he does. And I'm so happy. This is our third time working together, third or fourth. Fourth time Paul says working together. Thank you. Uh, nothing. <laughs> And, and this is the first time since I, as I was talking about a little earlier, I'd always been afraid of this window closing, this door closing. I started making films independently at 32. I was, you know, taking money and, and, and money that I was saving for a house and putting and buy, making a film instead and, and just kind of always um, um, 
trying to build build towards making movies. And so when I finally got to make them and people were giving me money to make them, I just wanted to keep going, keep going. I mean, Paul and I have made nine television shows. One, last, one lasted for seven seasons. We've worked for every studio in town. We've made the films, the documentaries, the music videos, like the commercials, like I'm constantly working. And like I said, something about turning 50. I said, I'm tired. I'm going to make this movie and then I'm going to take a little break. I don't even know what that's going to feel like because I've never done it. So I just don't know what it's going to be like not to be in prep on something while I'm in post on something else. Never experienced it. Uh, but I'm experiencing it now. Right now I have no, one job to share this movie. And after that, I'm going to go lay down somewhere. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. It's hard, but you got to do it. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's just your, your intent and the impact. Impact is something you cannot predict. You know, how is, it, how is that on all of my intention and all of Paul and I's work and Spike and the whole team and everyone putting that together, you know, how it impacts you is, is not, there's nothing I can do about it. All I can do is make sure that every frame, every decision, the color of every pillow, a picture on, every single picture on the desk, every book on the shelf, I'm, you know, every cut, every place where Chris Bowers is laying in the music, the mix, the color grade, the form, everything. I'm going to give you everything I've got. That's my intention. And the impact will be what it will be, but it, it can't be nothing because I'm giving you everything inside me. And I have to know and trust that as an artist, that, that's what art does. You know, intent, it will find someone. Will it be 600 people or it'll be maybe 60 people? But if you're doing it for the right reasons, you're thrilled to walk in here and see 60 people, you know what I mean? You're thrilled to just have here that, that, that's, that someone, that it resonated with someone, even one. And so I would say just keep going. And the other thing I'd say to your question is never hand your film off. Don't hand your film off. Your film's been acquired by a studio or it's been financed by a studio or something. someone's going to put it out. You are still making your film until it's in someone's eyeballs, right? You still have to be thinking about what is happening to your creation that came from you until you can't anymore. And so, you know, a lot, I see a lot of filmmakers, I used to be, be a publicist and a marketer, I see a lot of filmmakers, they finish, they turn it into the studio, and then they sit back and wait for the red carpet. You know, it's just, you, you still got to be working towards making sure that your film reaches its audience. Hope that answers your question. Yeah. Yeah, over there, back there. That's a great question. Thank you. I, um, I, I, I am very fortunate that I can write. It is also the worst times of my life. I, 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 and, and so it's tough because I know I can do it, right? And, 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 but I just don't like it. I just don't like it. So, no, I didn't feel free during that time. I felt stressed. But there's also the moment you get on the set and say, who the hell wrote this? <laughs> Why did they do this? What is this? But no, but 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 it was a, a, a typical screenplay structure, like we weren't just on improvising. And yet, because I wrote it and because I knew what I was doing and what I wanted, I could allow myself to get on the set and sometimes put the pages away and use them as a guide as opposed to a blueprint. You know what I mean? Use them as a feeling as opposed to what we had to do as a schedule. And so, there, but there were a lot of things that we found, I would say, more on set than even in the edit. The edit with my great editor, Spencer, my long term editor and love Spencer, um, we, there were some things that, that, that were new, but it was really on set, you know, and having the support of Paul and Spike, and I turned to them and I say, we're going over there. 
And they'd be like, uh, okay, everybody, <laughs> let's go over there. You know, in a responsible way, like I see something there. So after this shot, I'd love to do this. Or sometimes Spike would come over to me and say, you see that? What do you want? Yeah, let's get that. And so creating an environment where you could be free to go off the page when you needed to. But but you have to have a page to go off of uh, in order to kind of untether yourself from that. And so having a, a standard structured stream screenplay, I did have. Uh, it was painful to produce uh, and to actually make happen. But um, but yes, we went in with a, a normal script. All right. Well, I think I think that's about the amount wow, of time we have. Wait a second. Wait a second. Oh, I just, oh, oh, second. Oh, 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 I just oh, want to oh, say, oh, he's not no, finished. these people here, they may be few, but they are mighty. <laughs> they are, they are all going to go home tonight and they're going to talk to a lot of people about what they saw here today. And we were all privileged. So thank you, Ava. And oh, thank so you so much. Thank y'all. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q and a the director's cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.